Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Chit Heads. My guest today is Livia Cohen Shapiro. Livia is a pioneer in the intersection of yoga and psychology with a dedication to embodiment. She is known for weaving together yogic teachings, disciplined asana, and somatic psychology in clear and meaningful ways, inspiring teachers and students alike toward greater safety, trust, and the discovery of their own truth. She is known for her wit, humor, and fierce love, as well as her ability to, to actually teach yoga so you make it your own. A scholar practitioner, her passion for learning and irreverent reverence is infectious. Her methods of teaching straddle old school lectures and new school unconventional experiential models. So hello, Livia. Thanks so much for joining us today. Hi, thanks for having me. So I, I'm really excited to talk to you today because I feel like your work is really um an important and timely work right now, especially for the yoga community. So I'd love before we get in, to get to get into some details about your work, just to hear a little bit about your story and you know the 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 interesting parts of your history that have led into this work that you do. Hmm. Well, first, I just want to say thanks so much for having me. I've I've listened to many of your episodes before, and um, it's really just an honor to be here with you. So thank you. Um, and then in terms of my, my story, my journey, you know, I, um, I've never really had another job other than teaching yoga. I started teaching yoga when I was 19, um, awesome. when I was in college, mostly because I was obsessed with yoga yeah. and took all of the classes at the, I, I was a work study student at the gym mm -hmm. at the university of Vermont. And the woman who was running the yoga program, um, left in the middle of the semester and my boss was like well you take all her classes just you know do something <laughs> so I just kind of got thrown in there and um and I had a, a another job like a desk job for two weeks after I graduated college and I was like oh no, no way no way no way. <laughs> no way not for me um and so much to my my dad's dismay at the time I was like I'm just gonna figure it out I'm gonna teach yoga and um and and I did, and um, flash forward a, a few years from from there, I was, you know, convinced that yoga was the heal all kind of method, and and I developed a program for an eating disorders outpatient clinic, mm. a whole curriculum, um, and so I was teaching that, and what I came across was that as I was teaching this curriculum, um, the students. Uh, disordered eating behaviors, the symptoms were getting worse. Wow. And I was like, oh, okay, so what's going on here? And I, I just very quickly realized that I was kind of outside my scope yeah. um, and also outside of what I understood was possible for yoga. I realized how much kind of um, naivete I had about it. Yeah. Um, you know, and at whatever, or, you know, in my, in my early 20s. And so, and I also realized that the way that I wanted to teach yoga wasn't possible without a certain skill set. Mm -hmm. um, and I was also deeply um, not interested in living where I was living. So really a, a big way towards my future was, okay, I need to go to graduate school. Yeah. And so I made my way to the somatic psychology master's program at Naropa and always wanting to um, actually take those skills and um, bring it to the yoga community. Uh, and so I really started in my studies 
kind of um, culling the information so that it would be useful specifically to the yoga classroom and yoga teachers. And I started really implementing what I was learning and, and studying and um, researching and started really playing with what, what does it look like in a yoga private or a yoga classroom or maybe this, you know, uh, would be useful for a group of teachers. And, and then vice versa, I started bringing the yoga way more into the, into the therapeutic session. Mm. And then actually my good fortune was that the style of yoga that I was in heavily involved in at that time and was a teacher of Anusara yoga imploded on itself. Yeah. And that was a really, um, big boon in my life actually, because that disillusion created an opportunity for me to start speaking up and providing just like for the first time really in my life, I started saying, well, Hey, what about looking at it from this lens or what about this way or that way? And people started listening and, and then the whole sort of online school courses that I do now was sort of born from that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, you bring up a, a bunch of interesting points. And the first one that I wanted to just ask about is, um, or have you explored a little more, is this idea that seems, you know, it's, it's, it's changing definitely, but it seems somewhat pervasive in some circles, this idea that, that yoga is going to heal everything. And I mm -hmm. think what you're, what you're bringing up is that is kind of inviting in this new wave of more interdisciplinary focuses that do draw on the wisdom of, of different therapeutic models that are, that are going to kind of fill in the gaps because, you know, a lot of people bring to the table a whole host of, of traumas and, 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 you know, emotional experiences that, that they think are going to play out on the mat, but then, but then the mat almost becomes this new place for a form of escape. You know, I can't, you know, I can't even remember how many times I've heard someone say, oh yeah, I come onto my mat, my mat to, to, to not think, to like, to leave this planet in a certain kind of way. And yeah, I like that feeling of being out of body, but there's, there's an, there's, you know, then the question becomes, well, why am I seeking an experience of being outside my body through my practice, you know? So do you have any thoughts on that, on just that, that, you know, paradigm of yoga being, um, you know, first of all, like a, a, a kind of a, a prescription for everything. And then on the other hand, this um, idea of yoga as being some kind of like transcending the body experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I have a lot of thoughts on that, actually. <laughs> I think that, okay, well, here's one of the, I think, challenging pieces to understanding yoga in the, uh, in our current context and in the West is that yoga is, and this is what makes me very unpopular with a lot of the therapists <laughs> because yoga is a somatic psychology. It is one of the original methods yeah. and um, like the idea of like what we could now call in the literature and in, um, you know, even pop culture mindfulness, that is, that is a direct descendant of Buddhist philosophy. Um, the teachings of yoga, like Taoist philosophy that like, we don't have a market share on you know, therapists don't have a market share on teaching mindfulness to, to clients. Mm -hmm. And so yoga in the broadest sense, it really is a somatic psychology. We have a, a movement, we have a theory of mind, 
So we have a theory of body, a theory of mind, a theory that addresses, you know, illnesses of all kinds. We have um, a medicinal component to it. We have meditation. It's really a whole thing. And the way that it's been widely taught in the West is obviously, as you know, very bodied. It's really heavily weighted on the asana. And I'm not convinced that 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 it's necessarily bad that that's happening. I think that asana can be really profound and wonderful and useful. But what's happened is the some of the other components have sort of the yoga psychology or the psychology of yoga has sort of dropped off. And now we're seeing a reemergence of that. Now, where I take particular, and this is now what makes me a little bit unpopular with the yogis, which is that I don't think it's really very, always very useful to take a Western psyche and keep plugging an Eastern, um, and trying to fit an Eastern psyche into a Western psyche. Yeah. That, that produces a lot of issues when you start taking, especially around the concept of the ego, when you start trying to make a Western psyche understand and even live by the rules of what is meant to be an Eastern ego or not have one, we get into a whole host of tricky business. Yes. So that's why I really, I actually really like to bring the Western somatic or body-based psychology to the yoga because we're teaching Westerners. Mm -hmm. So we have to address the very nature of having a Western psyche. And I think sometimes there's trouble teaching an Eastern philosophy to a Western psyche. And that is one of the things that sends us out of our bodies more. Mm -hmm. And and there's that preference, right? There's some yoga traditions that are transcendent. And then there are some yoga traditions that are much more about descending into the body. And I don't pretend that I don't have a bias. You know, I have a strong bias to being in the body, descending into the body way more than transcending out. So, you know, I'm not, if you're on a transcendent path, you know, bless your heart, hallelujah, but that's not what I'm about. Yeah. So, um, and I, and I think that this, this, um, I don't even want to say conflict, but like juxtaposition of the Eastern mind and the Western mind actually adds to this belief that the transcendent path is, you know, it feels good. It's the way it's, and it, and it just creates a lot more dissociation yeah. um, flooding than actually healing. Yeah. So <clears throat> I love what you said about the ego because I feel that I, I, I feel the same way. In fact, I think it's so problematic that we use that term ego to understand something like, you know, for example, the ahamkara from Samkhya philosophy, which is often translated as ego, but really it means eye maker. And and if you look at it just as the, the, the eye maker or that which functions to organize the experience around me or mine, it's a bit, you know, it's a concept that just explains, a, you know, how things function. It's not a moral precept. You know, it's not like, it's not something to be that is morally loaded in the way that the term ego is. So, and and I you see this all the time in in the way that words are used to translate certain other principles. I mean, I think it's like let's just you know use the the Sanskrit itself and then try to kind of tease out the nuance of it so that we're not kind of bringing to bear all of our you know psychological hangups and and socio historical bullshit to into what we're reading or what we're trying to understand. So I'm so glad 
glad you said that. Um, I want to just have a very kind of like basic 101 moment on what somatic psychology is for mm -hmm. those that don't know what that means and how that is different from, you know, traditional psychology or folk psychology. Yeah. So um, when I say somatic psychology, I'm talking about the body being an integral part to understanding the mind. So the body being the place within which we experience um, where our troubles might be, but also where really as a, a huge resource um, and support for healing any of those troubles. So the other, and the other thing that's interesting with the somatic, that this word somatic is I love to link it back into the yoga actually, because somatic is of, of the, of the body of the soma and the soma in the yoga has several translations. Soma can be like the moonlight that the, the way the quality of, and like, it's just um, a full moon now. And as I've gotten older, I used to always joke, like my mom's like obsessed with the moon. And I'd be like, what are you doing? You're so lame, you know? And now I'm like, oh, like I have to, you know, go towards the moonlight. And I just like, I love to just, sit at my window and like let myself bathe in that light. And so the Soma being that moonlight, there's something about that quality that it's, it is actually the quality of light that that is needed. If you're going to go into the troubling or dark places inside, it doesn't work to like take a bright, shiny flashlight or like that, you know, huge, intense bright light of the sun and just be like, let me show you this thing. You know, it requires a much more delicate, um, quality of light. So the Soma as, as that quality of light that helps us to understand what's happening within the darkness of the places we can't see. Then we also have the Soma as, um, like the elixir of life, right? The very nectar of life, the thing that, um, is life giving. And so any somatic psychology is really about harvesting the, the life force. You want to call it prana, life force, shakti, chi, whatever, but harnessing what is most life affirming and trusting that your body has so much innate wisdom within itself that it actually can unwind in a very specific, meticulous way that is unique to you and yet still part of um, patterns that we might see in nature. Mm, mm, wow, that was so beautiful. Thank you for explaining and, and outlining the various kind of definitions or translations or meanings of Soma. That's such a beautiful way to explain um, what that represents. And you're right, like it's so nice that there's that this term can bridge the two traditions because we do see Soma in the in the Western tradition as well. So, um, you know, now just kind of let's get critical and talk a little bit about what you think are the main challenges for the yoga community, since your work is really very much for yoga teachers. So I would love for you to just kind of deconstruct what you see as happening, you know, from a from a more kind of cultural critical perspective. And then and then we'll get into a conversation about how this work is going to, you know, move us in, in a direction of, of change or transformation. So yeah, so any critiques you have, maybe three or more? <laughs> yeah. Um. <clears throat> Gosh, well, 
I actually think that where I want to start is by saying that I think that there's actually a lot of good happening. Yeah. You know, at the end of the day, getting someone to do downward facing dog or uttanasana or just stand on their two feet or sit in a chair and, and, and feel the current of their breath at the end of the day, that is better than it not happening. Yeah, totally. So I think that by and large, uh, the yoga is a good thing and the amount of yoga that we have happening, a good thing. So I want to preface it by saying in the context of, I think there's a lot of wholeness and goodness at, you know, at work here. Absolutely. Yeah. Now that said, we have a variety of, you know, issues. One is at the fundamental level, an Eastern practice being taught in the West and, and our failure to accept that or accept really there's, it's like, um, sometimes there's a lot of resistance to really allowing the yoga to radically change us. We want the yoga to fit in the pretty box of the Western ideal of marketing. So the way that we are, we are proliferating yoga is not on yoga's terms, it's on our terms. And I think that is um, not working that well. Mm-hmm. It might be working to the sense that we're getting more and more people doing yoga, but we're also, I, I don't know if that's, if we're doing a great service in the way that we are marketing yoga and the way that we are asking yoga to be this thing that maybe it's not. And that's a tricky thing because we also need to meet people where they're at and, and make it accessible. And so there's that tension between accessibility and, um, and sort of not watering it down too much. And that's always a hard, a hard thing. Then there's, there's this piece of um, what happens once you're in, like once you're in deep, mm-hmm. you know, and, um, and this is true, like in any relationship, like I, I had a, I was on my mom, on the phone with my mom yesterday and I was have I had an argument with my husband. My mom was like, well, didn't you see that in him before you got married? And I was like, no, of course not. Of course I refuse to see that. And she was like, well, why not? And I was like, because you never get married to the person who the person actually is. You get married to the idea of them. We, we don't, we don't like get into yoga because we see all the truths of yoga. We get into yoga because we see the good of yoga. Mm -hmm. So what happens then when you're, you know, in five years, six years, seven years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, is that you start to see that the, the, um, what it really is to be in a long-term monogamous relationship with yourself and with a practice is not that pretty. Mm -hmm. And, and that's how the shadow works actually is that, it needs a certain, we need a certain amount of safety and security and ground to really let the shit fly. And so what happens a lot of times in marriage is, you know, you're a year in or two year, two years in and you're like, holy crap, I did like had no clue. And it's because you signed a sacred contract together and somewhere deep in your psyche, you've relaxed enough that more of your true self is emerging. And the same is true in yoga. And we don't have a lot of tools, I think, across the board of really helping students move through those places and even ourselves as teachers move through those places of, of deep difficulty. 
you know, um, we, we don't get the luxury of moving through a practice and it only being feel good. We, we always will come against these places of pain and suffering. And even sometimes it might make some of our habits worse for a little while. And so that requires a, a whole other skill set and tool set of, of how to work with the material that the yoga is arise is eliciting within us. I always say that the yoga is deeply resourcing and healing and is also one of the most eliciting things you could possibly do because it's bringing all this stuff to the surface. And then what do we do with that? Um, so I feel like there's really not a lot of, um, well, I shouldn't say there's not a lot of that happening. I think that there are p other people like myself really teaching to that juncture, but we need more of that, mm. um, in my opinion. And then I would say, I would, I mean, if I'm looking at sort of the, my three big critiques is, you know, that this problematic of East West and how yoga is being brought in, um, then this, the, this shadow piece, like how you stay in the practice. And then I would say the third sort of biggest thing in my opinion is the dynamics around power, privilege, um, transference, counter-transference, erotic counter-transference with teacher and student. I think there's a lot of, um, and then, you know, issues of enmeshment and codependence. Um, I was going off about something the other morning with my, uh, something, I don't know, I got stirred by Facebook or whatever. And I was, <laughs> so my many husband, things get stirred by Facebook. So many things. <laughs> and, um, and I started laughing and I was like, you know, it doesn't seem like there's a guru in sight who's not interested in sleeping with their students. So I'm always going to have a job. <laughs> doesn't seem like it's stopping anytime soon yeah and so you know time after time after time i see you know the teacher whoever's in the seat of the teacher use their power in a not very good way um and or something happens with a teacher they fall from the pedestal whatever the story is and the level of shock that runs through that um, community, to me, I'm like, I'm sort of like, well, how did you, how did you kind of expect this not to happen? Yeah. And so it's a really tricky situation between how do we take back our power? How do we, um, you know, become individuated and also recognize like we do that as students, but then as, as the teacher to preach on about getting our students individuated and independent and not being enmeshed with us. When you're in the seat of the teacher, that's not actually the student's responsibility. That's yours because you're in the seat of power and privilege and the dynamic of the relationship. So it's really hard to balance the, how can the student, you know, find their own resources and also how can the teacher um, like step out of the way enough that they might be able to do that. And that's a hard responsibility to take on as a teacher. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if we really have the luxury of not doing that anymore. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it seems like we we are definitely moving into a period of post-guru in the West. But, I, you know, for me, I, 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 I never really felt called to... Uh, to say that I had, you know, a tradition. I just never met a teacher like that. And I have met a teacher like that now, but I don't consider him my guru. However, the how devoted I am to, to his teachings and how much 
how much I believe in what he's offering, I mean, you could sort of map that onto, I don't know, a, a guru shishya kind of thing, but it, it's, but, but that, but I don't experience that power dynamic being there. It's more like I, uh, he, he has a knowledge that I want to have. And so I'm going to stay with him so long as I have a passion to, to acquire that knowledge experientially and intellectually. And sure. so, you know, what, what is the, di- like, what, from your perspective, is the difference of dynamic between these types of contexts where we, you know, where it's like the tradi- the more or less traditional, at least traditional in the West, how we've come to co-opt it and, and all of the unhealthy baggage that we have. And then this other context where it's like it looks from from a certain vantage point like it would be the same. And, and yet there's a different kind of something happening there. When do we cross the threshold into an unhealthy um, uh, power distribution? Sure. Well, yeah, and I, I, so again, let me first say that I think that having a teacher is a wonderful thing yeah, and a deeply, deeply powerful thing. And, um, I have my teachers, mm-hmm. um, who I am very devoted to and, um, and it's always so amazing, like the the kind of the hoops and leaps that one is willing to do for their teachers, right? Like mm-hmm. um, the way that we put ourselves into service for them. And I actually think that that is um, a very beautiful thing, actually, when we're able to, you know, open up our heart and put ourselves in service of a lineage or a person um, that... That I think actually is a, is a really lovely thing, just like how we might do that for our parents. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm not of the mindset that, you know, let's all go rogue and like not have teachers and like, you know, uprise of the, of the student. We don't need anybody kind of no, not at all. I think yeah. that it's about finding the appropriate um, relationship and, and sometimes the teacher's, student relationship looks a lot more like a parent child relationship. Yeah. Sometimes it looks a lot like, um, a mentor relationship. So like really guiding them, letting them emulate you a lot and, and be in this process of, of discovery together. A lot of times there's a therapeutic transference that occurs. There's, there's a healing that occurs. Um, and then there's, um, Sometimes then there's like a collegial relationship that gets built. And that math, by the way, that method is something that I've studied deeply with my teacher, um, Melissa Michaels. And she has a whole map of how we work with mentoring individuals. And, you know, she really normalizes the the different stages. And there's my daughter, Olive. Hi, Olive. Um, (laughs) um, She really normalizes the stages that a teacher-student relationship could look like. And so I'm not, I'm not of the mindset that it's like the teacher student relationship must look like this. I think it can look like a lot of different kinds of relationship, but one of the fundamental things I think about having a healthy relationship with one's teacher is that, um, you're never out if you don't choose to be in. Mm. And so by that, I mean, you can come and go as you please. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You're, you're, it's not like the more you pay, the more, like the more you pay, the more workshops you go to, the closer to the inner circle you get. Oh God. You know, it's not, it's not like that. It's like, great. You can come to this workshop. 
Awesome. I love you. You can't come to this workshop. Awesome. I love you. There's no, it's, it's, it's not, um, the, the quality of the relationship and the intimacy of the relationship is not dependent on how much you pay and how much you show up, that there's a resonance between the teacher and the student at a level where you come as you can. And I've had relationships where it was like, you have to pay in, you have to get closer, you have to do more, otherwise you're out. And with the um, two women who are my um, long-term mentors and teachers at this point, never once have they ever said to me in, you know, overtly or covertly, you're out because you didn't come this time. It doesn't work like that. Yeah. So I think that that's a, a big um, marker of health of student-teacher relationship. Um, is really allowing, as the teacher, really allowing the student to come and go as they need, um, just like we would do as a parent. You know, obviously setting boundaries and and being close and all of that, but really allowing the child to um, move away from you and come back, and move away from you and come back. Hmm. And um, I think that's really overall a, a big home, hallmark of health. Um, and it can get really twisted because if you're a teacher in a studio and your class is dependent on numbers, you need the students to keep coming back to a certain amount so that you can get paid. Yeah. And so the way that we're marketing to them, it's very like come again, come again, come again. Right. And so it adds to this like need of them to come again, come again, come again, as opposed to really being able to stay rested in oneself and being like, you come and go as you please. The yoga's not going anywhere. I'm not going anywhere. This is here if you want it. The well is here if you want it. Mm, mm. Uh, so with the marketing piece, it gets tricky there. And then the longer you stay with a teacher, the more stuff comes up, right? So you get into conflict with them. A lot of teachers don't know how to deal with conflict with their students. Um, it's very normal for there to be a, a, a a rub or a conflict between a teacher and a student. That's a mark of health, actually, not a mark of necessarily a problem. Um, and then also there can be um, erotic countertransference that happens where we fall in love with our teacher or the or our students. And how do we work with that? Um, and I'm even going further out now and saying that there's a very specific kind of erotic countertransference that I'm seeing in the yoga world, which is a, um, like a spiritual countertransference where you experience, um, you experience like, uh, the way that spirit is coming through you and into you and, and coming into your life, you're misattributing it to being dependent on the teacher and vice versa. So, um, and if, if as a teacher, we don't kind of cut that cord, then we're, it's, there's a lot of, so in other words, you're saying that the that the the spiritual experience becomes completely dependent in the student's mind on the relationship rather than like rather than the teacher kind of helping to cultivate the conditions for the student to have the experience freely. Right. Yeah. Like, for example, if you're teaching, let's say teaching asana. I think there's a there's a phase where the student believes that they need to come to your class in order to do those asanas. But if you're doing your job really well as a teacher, what you should actually be 
educating them to do is to recreate the asana at home. Mm -hmm. They need to not need you ultimately. And that's a hard kind of shift to make is this idea of I need to eventually become dispensable. Yeah. That's interesting. That's really interesting and such important points. So I want to go back to one thing that you said because yeah. it sort of um, brought up something for me in relation to um, you had mentioned, okay, the, the this teacher-student relationship can take on many forms. It can take on the form of, you know, parent-child, mentor-mentee and, 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 and other kind of um, dynamics. And now is, is the implication in you mentioning that, that, that all of these forms are, are, are okay. And the reason why I'm asking that is because, you know, for example, someone like Matthew Remsky, he would implicitly, at least from my understanding, criticize a relationship of teacher student that takes on the form of parent child, because at least again, according to my understanding, he has sort of an implicit idea that it needs to be egalitarian, whatever egalitarianism means in, in the context of this relationship. But I feel like he would be um, critical of a teacher-student relationship taking the form of parent and child, whereas I, my at least, what I'm sort of understanding from you is that not always the case, and that maybe that's a can be a healthy, I don't know, process for some people. Like, what, 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 what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, so. I just don't, okay, so projection, transference, counter-transference, these are not bad things. Yeah. Right? These, these, are not, these are not bad, oh, I'm projecting, oh, I'm, I'm you know, transferring my unfinished mommy business onto my yoga teacher. They're not, they're not bad. They're human. Yeah. These, are, these are naturally occurring human phenomena. They don't not occur. Yeah. They always occur. So I think that the, the, the first step is, or at least kind of for me, I'm not thinking like, Oh, I want to eradicate projection right. or I want to eradicate transference. Not at all. I just want to use the projection or use the transference in a way that is actually, um, both beneficial and, um, non-malfeasant so it's not going to create harm and it's beneficial and that's like the that's really the therapeutic i would say the therapeutic model right when you go to counseling basically you sign a form that's saying we are agreeing to i'm going to pay you a hundred or 125 dollars an hour and i get to transfer all this crap towards you and you're gonna you're gonna know what's coming at you and you're gonna spin it around and help me see something where my blind spots are we're going to work on these relationships together. Um, and part of the reason that that's going to work is because I am allowed to transfer and project and all that. And you're going to call me out on it. Mm -hmm. That's what the therapeutic relationship is. And so where it gets tricky with yoga is that when students are coming to yoga, they're not signing that. They're just signing, you're going to teach me downward facing dog. <laughs> right? Or if you sign up for a meditation uh, teaching, you're not signing up for, you know, I'm going to. Uh, you're just learn you're just signing up for meditation. You're you're not necessarily investing in this um, therapeutic model of relationship. Now that being said, just because you don't sign up for that doesn't mean it doesn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> I know that's a lot that's a lot of negatives in that sentence, but you know, it's 
it's still happening. That, that phenomena is just naturally occurring. Mm -hmm. And so where I might, I might say back to Matthew, like, okay, if you want it to be an egalitarian relationship, awesome, let's work towards that. But let's also be realistic. The, the very, then we have to eradicate teacher student, even the, the term teacher student. You can't have a teacher student relationship and have it be egalitarian. That doesn't exist. Yeah. Yeah. It's the, an, the, it's an, like teacher student are, the, that's different. That's saying the teacher has something the student doesn't have yet and vice versa. So it's not egalitarian period. Yeah. So yeah. I think it's much more about honoring the difference that the difference makes. And, um, and sure you could, if you want to aim towards the egalitarian piece and the equality piece and all that, I think that's a wonderful thing. That's not, I'm not going to do that because I think that this other way, for me, it's also a little more interesting. Um, there's also like just with the parent teacher example, if you're okay, I just turned 33 and my teacher is 53 ish. <laughs> like she could be my, she could be my mom, right? We can't deny that. Like I'm the same age as her daughter. She could be my mother. Yeah. So the, the, even just the, the age difference creates a certain dynamic possibility, right? It's easy for me to project mommy stuff towards her, transfer mommy stuff towards her because she could be my mom. So like, how could I possibly even like looking for this equal egalitarian thing is almost like, I don't really want to spend my time doing that when I could just accept the fact that I might transfer the stuff onto her and let's have a conversation about that. Let's actually have a conversation about how I project the good mom onto my teacher and keep making my mom the bad mom. That's interesting to me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, also, sorry, go ahead. Oh, just, I just think it's more interesting than, um, trying to make it equal when it's not yeah. period. Yeah. Yeah. And also, it, it, and not only is it, as you say, natural for those, those transferences to take place, but also, I mean, to have a relationship where it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm perfectly aware that this woman is a mother figure in my life and that there's transference going on, but I don't care. It's a beautiful relationship. Like there, you know, there's can be beautiful expressions of relationships that have these kinds of qualities, you know, that aren't necessarily just because they're hierarchical. And I love the, what you said about, you know, cause I've said this before when in conversations, about stuff like this, where you just cannot, you know, hierarchy is not a negative term. People throw it around sometimes as if hierarchy implies something negative, but we, we could not, you know, it, we would have a really hard time functioning as a society if there weren't levels of hierarchy that just made sense. I mean, obviously hierarchy can then be taken to the kind of, you know, to a level of, of power and domination. And that's another thing, but like, let's not conflate hierarchy with domination. Right. And so that to me, that to me seems to be a, a little bit about what you're saying that, that, you know, I don't know, I, you know, a diversity of, of expressions of relationships doesn't always have to be kind of, I don't know, uh, we don't have to level the playing field field all the time, I guess is what I'm saying. So, um, so now I'd love to talk a little bit about 
a little bit um, something I heard you bring up in in one of the vi short videos that I, I watched of you where you're talking about self-care as an industry. And, you know, a lot of what we're talking about in terms of of grappling with, you know, emotional trauma and 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 using um, uh, recognition of transfers and opportunity to to move in the direction of fullness or, or equality or a sense of of wholeness. Um, and you know, we could say, we could kind of brand that all as a form of self-care. Um, and, and um, you know, maybe inappropriately so, but I, the reason why I'm asking this is because I had an interview with, with Hari Kirtana Das recently, and he was talking about how the, the or at least in his book, how self-care has easily slips into a kind of narcissism where he wants to kind of emphasize, for example, the 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 action of the practice like the bhagavad gita it's about you know your duty to your fellow beings like your action in the world showing up being um of service and um and so do you, do you see any danger of all of this kind of like self analysis self exploration um where does it slip into a kind of narcissism and how can we avoid that and and make that really turn this kind of self-exploration into something that is a, a, of benefit to others? Mm. Yeah. I just sort of smirking because, you know, I live in Boulder, which is like the land of spiritual narcissism. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the term I like to use is navel-gazing. You know, you're just like all, you know, just, oh, my, my arm. Oh. <laughs> you my see people process. do that? I'm processing. I'm processing. Do people um, say that in the oh, Boulder? I'm deep in process. No way. Take, I'm deep in process. No, people say that? I'm deep in process. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, I want to go to Boulder just to kind of, just as a... Um, yeah, you come visit us anytime. I just want to observe the people. Yeah, you come visit us anytime. <laughs> um, so, okay. When, when, when I, um, when my daughter, my daughter's 13 months old and when she was about, I don't know, seven weeks old or something, she discovered she had feet and she, we had this like little, um, uh, like, like kind of like this, like round cushion that she would sit in and it provided just like enough kind of snuggle for her. And so I remember one day sitting on the couch and she was in that little, that little pillow and she looked down and she realized she had these things connected to her legs. Oh and she was like, she realized she could push her feet and just like the level of intent with which she was, you know, looking at her feet or like the day she discovered she had hands, you know, or the day she discovered that, you know, like mommy had this face, you know, and eyes that she could gaze into like the way that, that we learn as babies, we, we discover, Oh my God, like my hand and my foot and my nose. And you know, like I can crawl. I can, it's like, it's so just amazing. Yeah. And so I think that that process of discovery and being like enamored with one's embodiment is a very healthy developmental process. Just like, um, we also come to realize like somewhere along the way we realize, oh, 
my mommy's not just my mommy. My mommy is a person with, you know, with thoughts and feelings and desires that don't include me, you know? And so like we realize our, our mom and dad aren't mom and dad. They're so-and-so and so-and-so they have proper names other than mommy and daddy. And so I think, you know, we, this, this process of understanding ourselves again and again and again is developmental and appropriate. And that I, that process I think gets kind of reflected back in the spiritual development. So we have psychological development, emotional development, physical development. We have spiritual development. Yeah. So someone could be 45 and be like a spiritual newborn. And I'm not using that in a, in a negative or patriot, um, you know, I'm not trying to be patronizing. I'm just simply saying they could be just awakening to this new emerging thing coursing through them. And, a lot of times we want the physical development, the emotional development, the psychological development, the spiritual development to all be moving together, kind of emerging at one. Mm -hmm. And that sometimes happens, but not, not all the time, you know? And, and I think that we could have people who are, um, you know, 40, 50, 60, and they're sort of being, being born um, at a certain level. And so, because of the the capacity to develop at these different rates throughout our life, what starts to happen is we get like that newborn kind of nascent narcissism that comes with that. You know, there there is a certain amount, just like kids, kids are inherently narcissistic. They don't understand, like they think they are the universe because they are at that time. And so at one level, when I'm seeing that happen in, in an adult, I get curious about like, oh, like what, what is that really newborn part of yourself, that, that, that narcissism that has to come through? And so for me, it's always a difference between what is developmental and what is defensive. Mm. Because we've got developmental processes that can be happening at different times, but then we, they can also be turned into defensive strategies. Yeah. So for example, even like projection is a very normal um, developmental step in our psychological understanding. But when we start to get older, we should have a little bit more capacity to catch those projections as they're emerging. And so when we don't, then it's more defensive. Mm. Just like, okay, here's a good example with the yoga context, the magical thinking of the child. The magical thinking of the child is a wonderful beautiful, necessary psychological function. It's like, if I wear my clothes inside out and sleep backwards in my bed, I'm going to have a snow day (laughs) or something more serious. If I act this way or not this way, mommy and daddy won't get divorced. Mm. Right. Or if I, if I do this, mommy won't do this. Right. Children need to have a sense of volition in their world. I mean, think of it. Think about being so tiny and the world is so big. I mean, of course, you're going to need to feel like you have some control um, and capacity to um, take a stand in your world. And so that in children looks like if I do this, mommy will or won't do this. It's very based on the way we consistently or inconsistently tend to the child. In the adult where it's become spiritually defensive, 
and perhaps in need of some repair is if I show up to this workshop, my teacher will give me preferential treatment and I'll get da 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 da. Or if I, you know, invoke Krishna, then this is going to happen. Or if I do this, this is going to happen. And like, sure, putting yourself at the feet of grace is always a good thing. But like, let's be realistic about what can and can't happen. We don't live, see children live in a karmic, they only live in a karmic world. If I do this, then this will happen. But the, and then when we move into our adult world, we understand that the world is karma and Leela both. And living in a world that is Leela, which is that chance is very scary. Mm. And so the mark of the adult is being able to live in a world that has karma and Leela. Mm. The children live in a karmic world. Adults live in a karmic and Leelic world. And then adolescents have to wrestle with this. This is why adolescence is very difficult because we want the world to be karmic. We want the world to be Leelic. It's like, that's why there's all this happening and stirring in this tumult of adolescence. And so, um, if we don't step into, you know, what's being asked for us in that way, we'll always sort of, I think, flip back into what is developmental can become defensive. So I know I sort of riffed off from your original question. No, I love that. But I want to ask you a little bit, a bit of clarifying about how you're thinking, because for me, I would, if I was to, I love the idea of karma and Leela, by the way, as a de developmental thing. And, but I would think that, you know, the play of childhood would be something like Leela. And then karma would be like the confronting of consequences, you know, cause and effect that you really only learn as an adult, you know, the, I, I behave this way, this is what happens. So what you, you, you actually yeah. offered it in the opposite way. So what do you yeah. mean by that? Can you, you just yeah. unpack that a little more? Sure. Thanks for pulling that out. So, well, I don't think it's always this or always that. Um, because for, like, for example, I think what young, what young children are figuring out is that it's not just chance, right? Like, you know, those stacker rings. So they've got like the little cone and kids can like stack the little rings on top. And it takes a little bit of, of figuring out of, oh, I have to hold it with my one hand and then move my hand over here and then drop it down this cone. So there's this whole, like they are learning cause and effect yeah, actually yeah. at a very early age. So they're learning about, um, about the nature of karma and that things aren't just chance mm -hmm. from the moment they're born. Um, and, and also children ideally are developing in a, in a world where the caregivers are pretty consistent. So the child learns if they cry, their needs get met. If they do this, their need gets met. If they do this, they have to wait five minutes. So they're actually learning this cause and effect. I think a lot earlier than what we, what we often attribute mm -hmm. and, um, and children, I mean, we could say like Leela being this, the, the play of the universe Sure, children do live in a magical world. They live in the world that's imaginary. They live in the world of fairies and gnomes and make-believe, and you know, that's real for them. And so that, of course, has a, a playful, dynamic, chance, Leela nature to it. That's, that's true. And I think as adults, we could benefit from living more in those imaginal realms. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why so many adults love yoga and love yoga philosophy and love yoga mythology because it allows us to step into that alternative consciousness again as an adult. It's, yeah. it's so beautiful, yeah. you know? 
So, um, uh, but I think that that dynamic interplay of the karma and Leela is actually always intertwining from the very beginning. Mm, mm, okay. Yeah, that's interesting. Thank you for teasing that out. Um, so now as we sort of get towards the end of our of our lovely conversation, and this has been really interesting, um, I wanted to ask you, because I found out actually at the beginning of this, that we share... Um, um, some, uh, some teachers who are, are focused on more of the tantric philosophy. And so I'd love to hear a little bit about maybe how you see your own studies of, of Tantra and, and the teachings that ar- 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 arise out of Kashmir Shaivism, how these integrate with your own work. Mm. Well... You know, when I started studying yoga, I, I started studying yoga from art and myth and archetype. And really, I was studying a lot more of like the murtis and the images before I even was into the asana. Mm-hmm. And I'm very fascinated with how people, how archetype shows up in people and how image and form and personality all coincide. My mother's an actress. So I've always been very interested with how we can embody different aspects of culture and aspects of ourselves and, and characters and all this stuff. And so I think that really looking at the, the, the Hindu pantheon was something that was very um, alluring to me. And, and you know, how I, this idea of understanding that we can have a cohesive one and then have all these different facets of the other always made very or facets of the one rather is what I'm trying to say that, that, that always made a lot of sense to me. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I find that the practice of some body centered psychology is really the practice of understanding all of those different archetypes, images, characters in you, as you, as they emerge in different circumstances. So rather than looking at, like, we could look at, you know, Nataraja, we could look at Saraswati, Lakshmi, Hanuman, all these different deities, and we could pick apart, oh, they're, you know, holding the Tamaru, they're holding this, and then, you know, and and understand the meaning of that. And it's really nice to take a, a look at that from the outside. But then what's also really cool is to be with yourself in subtle movement or even just sitting, and you notice, like, a little sensation maybe it's like a, a little tingling in the back of your neck and then like exploring that tingling a little bit in the back of your neck, seeing what, how your body wants to move in response to that. Or if there's a color there or a voice, or even just does that sensation grow or shrink or how does it want to move? What that we're doing the same study, but from the inside out. Mm. So that's where I think a there's, that's one way that I think the, the somatic psychology and then sort of the, the philosophy of the yoga start to commingle in a really interesting way. I also think that somatic psychology, if you look at like just how we have like yoga is this umbrella term and we have like classical yoga, tantra, different kinds of tantra, right? So we've got psychology and then we've got like dialectical behavior therapy and we've got somatic psychology and we've got gestalt therapy and we've got family systems therapy. So there's some similarities of like 
having this umbrella and then looking at these different threads of lineage. And Mm -hmm. I find that it's the somatic lineage and the tantric lineage that are the most alike in that, in their respective, um, contexts. Mm, Okay. Awesome. So, um, so as we close, I've, I wanted to maybe if there's anything else that you want to share, actually, I wanted to ask you, what yeah. is ecstatic unfoldment? This is the name of your website. Sure. Yeah. Oh, the name of my website. Um, so, um, when I, okay, there's a lot of pieces into in it, actually. <laughs> Um, it's so funny when I think when you name something or someone you have, you only see one part of it, Totally. you know, and then, and then it's name reveals itself to you and you're like, Whoa, I didn't see that before. That's so cool. You know? So, um, with that, um, when I was in my twenties and I was like, Oh, I have to have a yoga website. I had like Lydia Shapiro yoga, you know, on like a blog spot or whatever. And then somewhere along the way, um, I decided to kind of, I don't know, make things more branded or like kind of try to conceptualize what I was up to. And I always really liked that, um, asana, which is now called chamat karasana or wild thing pose. Some people call it. It's a kind of a arm balance, kind of a back bend. It's a very ecstatic pose. And one of its, its interpretations of the name is the ecstatic unfoldment of the enraptured heart. Mm. And, um, one of the statues that I studied when I was interested in art history was the ecstasy of St. Teresa by Bernini. It's a very famous, um, one of Bernini's most famous works. And it's this image of, um, it's this image of, uh, St. Teresa being pierced in the heart by the divine. Mm -hmm. And what I always found so interesting was her, you know, surrender to this piercing nature. And she's not like blissed out happy. She's like, kind of writhing in pain, but kind of really happy, but kind of like really stoned and kind of, it just sort of had this whole piece to it. Yeah. So much her body and so much the divine. And that was, has always kind of been my experience in that particular asana, like this very, I'm very much my body. I'm very much not my body. There's very much being penetrated and being penetrated by the spirit, but also being the spirit itself. Yeah. That, that interplay. And so, um, hence the name of the website and over time it has revealed itself to be more and more true of what I think I actually am about, which is, um, how can we be so deeply in our bodies, so deeply present, so available to, the current that's in us just being mundane human creatures and with the capacity, not only with the capacity to have the divine coursing through us, but to know that the divine is there. Mm-hmm. That's part of it too. It's like we can have this body and we can, we can know this body at like the level of muscles and bones and we can have this breath and know this breath 
and we can have this divine out there and study it, but we can also know that it is and be conscious that it is moving through us. And I think that's what the, some of the teachings of St. Teresa provide us is like, not only is she in her body, not only is the divine there, but she knows that the, the divine is there. That's the whole point. It's like being allowing oneself to being overtaken by the spirit in a way that is grounded and, and, and present. That's beautiful. So that's really what, you know, what the website's about and what my work is about. And, you know, it's sort of a, it allows me a, a catch-all, right, to have a lot of the body studies, a lot of the philosophy studies, you know, um, and yeah, it's just remained a, a catch-all. And I can assure you that after having a baby, <laughs> where the baby comes out of you, that's ecstatic awesome. unfoldment. Yep. Okay. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's really beautiful. What a nice note to end on. So um, thank you so much, Livia. This has been such a pleasure. So just to close, I want to give you an opportunity to, we've already mentioned your website, ecstaticunfoldment.com. Do you want to share anything else, any workshops, uh, courses that you're doing coming up that people might be interested in? Sure. Um, well, uh, I, I always invite people to take a look at the website. Um, there's a lot on there. Um, so I think one of the, yes, I, I teach locally in Boulder out of my home, um, weekly classes and working on providing some, um, kind of bigger, uh, more workshop type offerings. I travel and teach at studios. Um, I teach in teacher trainings and cover a variety of, of topics. Um, so you can catch me there or, you know, I love to be invited to places when, when it's a good fit. Yeah. Um, yeah. I love to be able to do that. Uh, I think one of the things that I'm getting to be more recognized for is this, these online offerings. I have an online school that has a whole host of different um, courses on it. And one, the one that's, most, um, that, that's coming up most quickly is um, a four, it's basically two weeks, but it's four sessions. And it's a class on embodied ethics. And so that's a lot of, we talked about a lot of um, yeah kind of the, the foundation of what's real, what it really takes to handle some of these ethical dilemmas in the context of yoga. Um, and so we're, we're, we're going to work on how do we really cultivate our bodies as an instrument to understand um, how to make these ethical decisions and what, it, what even is ethics and, and, and our responsibility in contemporary yoga. So I'm really excited. That's a new course, and that's going to start, um, I think, on the 17th. Um, so I would, I would definitely encourage folks to check that one out Amazing. for sure. Yeah, that's an incredible offering. And that's on your website, right? Ecstatic Unfolded? Yes. Okay, awesome. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much, Livia. It's been a real Thank pleasure. You. I'll yeah. talk to you soon.